You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Sue Monk Kidd. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Sue Monk Kidd, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Sue Monk Kidd grew up in Georgia during the 1950s and 60s when racial tensions simmered to a boil. That experience laid the groundwork for her first novel, The Secret Life of Bees. Her most recent book, The Invention of Wings, digs deeper at the wounds of race and gender in America, again through the bond between two women both imprisoned in their own way. Sarah Grimke is confined by the dictates of debutante behavior among Charleston's genteel planter class. Hetty is captive to the barbaric norms of 19th century slavery. In real life, Sarah Grimke and her sister Angelina became powerful drivers of the abolitionist cause. But the invention of wings is not a history. It is, in the author's words, a thickly imagined story. Sue Monkid stepped out on the stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to talk more about the invention of wings. I want to begin with the first four paragraphs in the invention of wings. There was a time in Africa the people could fly. My mama told me this when I was 10 years old. She said, handful, your granny mama saw it for herself. She say they flew over trees and clouds. She say they flew like blackbirds. When we came here, we left that magic behind. My mama was shrewd. She didn't get any reading and writing like me. Everything she knew came from living on the scarce side of mercy. She looked at my face, how it flowed with sorrow and doubt, and she said, you don't believe me? Where you think these shoulder blades of yours come from, girl? Those skinny bones stuck out from my back like nubs. She patted them and said, these are what left of your wings, but one day you're going to get them back. I was shrewd like mama. Even at 10, I knew this story about people flying was pure malarkey. We weren't some special people who lost our magic. We were slave people, and we weren't going anywhere. It was later I saw what she meant. We could fly all right, but there wasn't any magic to it. Those lines are in the voice of my character, Hetty Handful. She's an enslaved woman in 19th century Charleston. And I wanted to quote them to you because, in a way, I feel like they contain the distilled essence of the entire novel. And when I began with those, I I thought, well, if I can just extrapolate from those paragraphs, I can write this whole novel. Uh, they seem to suggest this innate longing we have as human beings for freedom. And really our ability to transcend and our limitations and invent our wings, so to speak. It was 2007, I went up to New York from Charleston, South Carolina, where I was living, to see the Judy Chicago Dinner Party exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. 
But as I'm looking at these heritage panels on which are written 999 names of women who've made significant contributions to Western history, I came upon the names of Sarah and Angelina Grimke, two sisters from South Carolina, from Charleston, in fact, who were the first female abolition agents in America and these early women's rights pioneers. And I stood there kind of flabbergasted because I had never heard of them. And as it turned out, I'd been driving by the Grimke House in Charleston for 10 years and had no idea. There's no, there was no marker at the time. I came home from New York. I thought, you know, how ironic I had to leave Charleston where they were born and go to New York to discover them. And I went home and I began to read everything I could about these sisters. And I became absolutely obsessed and captivated by their lives. I think what got me was how could this happen? How could two sisters from an aristocratic, wealthy, slave-holding family in 19th century Charleston end up being exiles in the North, pariahs in Charleston, mounting this public crusade for abolition, fighting for women's rights? How could this happen? I wanted to try to understand that. And I was moved by Sarah, by how much she yearned to have a voice in the world. She desperately wanted a vocation. She wanted to be the first female lawyer in America, and it didn't work out for her. But from the moment I decided I would write a novel and do it in the narrative voice of Sarah Grimke, I also knew I would write a narrative in the voice of an enslaved woman to be entwined with that. In fact, I, I felt so strongly about that, I told myself that if I couldn't write the story of the enslaved woman, I wouldn't write the novel at all. And I discovered in Sarah's journal that she had been given what she called a waiting maid. This is a euphemism, of course, for enslaved girl, whose name was Hetty. Hetty died young. And the only thing we really know about her is that Sarah taught her to read. And they were caught and they were punished because it was against the law to teach an enslaved person to read in South Carolina. Now, when I saw this, I knew right away that I had found the other half of this story. That I wanted to imagine what her life might have been like if she had lived and what would the relationship have been between Hetty and Sarah. I think when someone says slavery, we might conjure up immediately some plantation imagery, cotton fields or slave cabins. But this novel really attempts to look at urban slavery, which is quite different, really. Charleston was thought of in the early 19th century as the crown jewel of the South. It still seems to think that it is. <laughs> um, it was a place of a lot of wealth and a lot of opulence, a lot of societal hierarchies. On any given day in Charleston, you could see the streets teeming with slaves going about their work. And the whole system could only operate with surveillance and control. So there was quite an intricate system in place of, 
of badges and passes and city guard and, and something that I discovered in my research called the workhouse, which was perhaps the most disturbing thing that I uncovered that I didn't know about. It was a place where slaves could be sent to be punished for a fee. In Charleston, you could purchase 20 lashes for a half dollar. So it was in this environment that one of the largest slave rebellions and plots in America was hatched. It didn't quite work out, but it was quite a plot. And this was the Denmark VC plot. And I tried to intersect Denmark VC's story with that of my characters, Handful and her mother, Charlotte. And the reason I wanted to do that was so that I could at least acknowledge in this book the way enslaved people resisted and struggled and fought and died. I think the idea that many, most, in fact, enslaved people were passive and part of the family and happy, we've heard that myth. And I think it is a, tra a, a travesty and a myth. And I wanted to at least acknowledge how they subverted this system. Um, I, I think abolitionists have gotten a great deal of credit, but I don't think enslaved people or free blacks at the time have gotten the kind of due they really deserve for setting themselves free. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth. Today, writers on a New England stage with the best-selling author Sue Monk Kidd, recorded live at the Portsmouth Music Hall. Race and gender are something are, are two things that matter very deeply to me and which I have written about a good bit. Uh, a white woman in South Carolina, the early 1900s, even a really privileged rich one like Sarah, was vastly, shockingly limited. Women had few rights, as you know, uh, in many cases not to property, not to their own children, and I could go on and on. I mean, their purpose in life was deemed to marry, to have children, and to live out their lives in the domestic sphere. This is how Sarah was enculturated. There's a moment in the novel where Handful looks at Sarah and she says, my body might be a slave, but not my mind. For you, it's the other way round. Sarah's quest for freedom, and she had to invent her wings just as Hanville did. Her quest had to do with liberating herself internally to free her, her mind, you know, her spirit. And then the bravery to express that self in the world. I think that's a pretty classic uh, female journey, actually, even today. One of the things I wanted to get across in this novel was that it was in fighting for the rights of others that women in this country discovered the injustice of their own oppression. And Sarah and Angelina were the ones who linked this up. They were the ones who linked abolition and women's rights. I, I call them in the novel female incendiaries because they lit a spark, a, a spark of freedom for women uh, 10 years before the Seneca Falls Convention, first women's rights convention in America, um, 
with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, Sarah and Angelina Grimke were out there taking the first blows of backlash. They were fighting for a woman's right to speak in the public sphere to a mixed audience. And I'm not talking race, I'm talking gender here. It was unheard of for, men, for women to speak publicly to men. So there's a line in the novel that I really love. It's probably my favorite line, and it's just four words. And I put it in the mouth of Lucretia Mott. She sent a message to Sarah and Angelina at the height of the violent backlash against them, which was really quite stunning. And the words were, press on my sisters. I think, I think I was the one who really wanted to say that to them. Well, I've been asked uh, many times, what do you want readers to take away from the invention of wings? And I thought about this a great deal. And of course, as a novelist, I want my books to enlighten someone's mind, perhaps. You want your book to be a carrier of ideas, and perhaps they would learn something about 19th century history or American slavery or discover Sarah and Angelina or rediscover them. But what really compelled me, I think even more than that, was I wanted readers to have a felt experience of what it really would be like. I wanted them to be able to feel what it might be like to be a privileged white woman with absolutely no rights, or an enslaved woman whose whole life had been stolen from her. And I'm talking about empathy, of course, which I, I think is one of the most mysterious transactions in the human soul, and it's the real power of literature in my mind. That ability to take someone's experience and make it our own and identify with them profoundly, that's what changes us. When I was in college, I read Ralph Waldo Emerson. Loved his work. And I remember reading about something he called the common heart. And that was a place inside of every human, he said, where we share a common unity with everyone. And as a writer, I believe in that place. And I, you know, as a person, I believe in that place. And I do think that my greatest hope would be that m my work might sometimes be a portal to take people into this common heart. In the author's note at the end of The Invention of Wings, I quoted some words that I read every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. They're words by Professor Julius Lester, and I wrote them on a little card, and I propped them on my desk when I started writing the book. And they stayed there for four years while I, I did write the book. And they said, history is not just facts and events. History is a pain in the heart, and we will repeat history until we make another's pain in the heart our own. Thank you very much.
Best-selling author Sue Monk Kidd there, talking about the transformative power of literature and the inspiration that guided her through the writing of The Invention of Wings. That was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. I'm Virginia Prescott. After a short break, Sue Monk Kidd joins me to talk about discovering the forgotten histories of radical women, slave rebellions, and more about her own emancipation from the fundamentalist church of her youth. That's when Writers on a New England Stage from Word of Mouth returns on NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Sue Monk Kidd, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Before the break, Sue Monk Kidd read to the audience from her novel, The Invention of Wings. The narrative alternates between the voices of Sarah Grimke, a prominent abolitionist, and the slave, Hetty, also called Handful, who was given to her as a child. Sarah Grimke is an historic figure who left behind letters and writings and speeches that give us a sense of who she was and how she might have sounded. Hetty was a slave who died young. Given that, I asked Sue Monk Kidd how she developed the voice and character of Hetty out of whole cloth. It was surprising to me how she showed up, full-blown talking. She did not stop talking for four years. <laughs> really, sometimes, it was surprising for, to me, sometimes she started talking before I got to my study. And I would have to hush her up till I could get in there. It was sort of like that. Now, do I sound crazy? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, in my imagination, she did talk to me, and um, sometimes... I would have a hard time keeping up with her. It is true. But to prime that pump, I think it came from a lot of places. I read a lot of um, 19th century slave narratives. I read the voices of the women from G's Bend, Alabama. Oh, the quilt makers. Yes. Um, Read their, their narratives. But, you know, I grew up in a small town in Georgia, and... I was around a a lot of African-American women whose voices are still in my head. They're quite poetic to me. So I I don't know. I must have absorbed some of it by osmosis, but there she was talking right away. Her language (laughs) is so great, so immediate, and so uh, spunky. Um, Trying to think of some of the things that she said that stuck with me, like, we was just waiting for the day to get used up. You know, what a great expression in describing the missus as having these little, what look like little balls of dough underneath her eyes. You know, just this kind of plain spoken way. But also Sarah, you know, with a much more repressed, much stiffer kind of language, but also just a keen observer. Tell us about that voice, how you got Mm -hmm. that. Sarah's voice, as I alluded, was harder to come by for me, and I took me months, really, to feel like I had freed her up enough for her to, to find her real voice. You know, if, when you read Sarah's journal, her voice is stilted in 19th century language. And if I had rendered it like that, like it really was at the time, no one would have ventured past her first chapter, I don't think. Uh, Maybe you didn't anyway, I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, I had to give a modern sensibility to her voice. 
And it took some time for me to find that balance because I wanted it to have an echo of authenticity, but I wanted it to have a modern sensibility so readers could identify with it. I have no idea how to find that balance, but I just, work, I just kept working at it until something in me went, there she is. Well, besides their voices, besides their mindsets, you were approaching the relationship, the complicated dynamic of a relationship between a slave owner and a slave. Did you wrestle with that? Every day. Yeah. Um, If there was anything that kept me up at night, it was this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thinking about how this, I mean, it was a very different level of relating going on here. We have this, uh, a, a vast divide of, of slavery that they have to reach across and relate. Is that even possible to have a genuine relationship? I mean, I grappled with all of that. And it seemed to me that um, it would be a very complicated relationship and it wouldn't be um, one of sweetness and light. It would be full of guilt. I think white guilt, shame, defiance, um, all kinds of things that would render that difficult. But at the same time, I wanted to show that some sort of uneasy love was possible, that they tried to find a way to, um, to find the common ground or the common heart together. And I think they did, but it was an uneasy thing. And Handful said, they say love gets fouled by a relationship like ours. And I think it is fouled by things, but still possible somehow um, to transcend it. Well, you grew up in the 50s and 60s in the South during the civil rights era. Your family, did they have people who were in service in your home? Yes, um, this was incredibly common. Um, I, I didn't know any family in my little hometown in Georgia of 3,500 that didn't have um, what was called a housekeeper or a maid or a a house servant. And we had several, my grandmother, I mean, I have memories of um, the front porch of my grandmother's house with several African-American women shelling butter beans and telling stories and singing. I was always hanging out right there because that was the most interesting place in the house to me. Um, So indeed, that was common. Yes. So you had that relationship. Was it a relationship of love? Was there ever a closeness? Because you write about it so well in, in The Secret Life of Bees and in this book as well. Well, yes. I mean, I did. Of course, you do have a relationship. Um, but I think, again, it is an uneasy one because you have someone of privilege and someone who's the maid in the house. It's a very difficult thing. And, um, you know, I remember the injustices. I... I came of age in the 60s. My high school was the first, I I graduated from the first integrated class in my high school. Um, That wasn't until um, 1966. And some of the memories of that turned up in the secret life of bees. So the things that I witnessed, the injustices, the racial cruelty, the divides, the segregation, All of that left, um, I started to say, a mark on me, but I really think it was a kind of scar, really, just even witnessing it. And I I suppose I felt some desire, need, to write about it, to witness it, and hope that it would be some kind of redemptive thing. But um, 
you know, it was always in there, and I think I always knew I would write about it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons these books work um, or, or have not been criticized for that kind of appropriation of the African-American story is because there's no white savior narrative going on here. Nobody's getting saved. But still, you're putting these books out here at a time of extreme racial sensitivity and a lot of pain. So any hesitation about criticism that that you are a white woman writing a story about basically the African-American experience? Yeah, I had absolutely no hesitation to do that. You know, James Baldwin said that um, when it comes to race, we have a common history. That's quite true in the South, particularly. It's a very common history. It's a divided history, too. Um, But no, I didn't. Now, I say I had no hesitation, but that's not to say that I didn't feel some um, uneasiness at times about writing in the voice of an enslaved black woman. But my feeling is that we can't begin to say, you can write about this, but you can't write about that. Um, Then we begin to have a real problem with the freedom of expression in in art and literature and story um, with cultural ownership. I'm sensitive to it. I understand it. You know, I think about it. But I decided that we're at a place where we have to begin to empathetically tell stories across divides and bridges, bridge this, and that we should be more concerned with inclusion than we are appropriation, as important as that is. You know, I think we have to think about all telling our common history now mm-hmm. and owning this history. Well, the relationship dynamic between them is so interesting. There's one point in the book when Handful says, my body might be a slave, but not my mind. For you, it's the other way around. It, is it true? I mean, does Sarah envy her? Does she believe that, that as a woman who's free, that she's more enslaved than Hetty? I don't know if the, if the historical Sarah believed that or not. I believed it about her. And I wanted to suggest that um, white people also have a journey to make when it comes to race. We have to free ourselves to think from the bottom up sometimes and to see come at things from different lenses and to realize um, that we have a lot to learn from an enslaved person, even as Sarah did. But of course, their punishments. Uh, you mentioned the incident when it was discovered that Sarah was teaching Handful to read. They were both punished, but very differently. And your observation of the punishment of the slaves is really acute. I was wondering what it was like to write that. I mean, it's horrible, violent stuff. Yes, it was, and it was so much worse than I even could include in the, in the book. I mean, the reader can only take so much, or they're not going to read the book. So I had to work with where is the line. Some people have told me I, I pushed the line too far, and I wanted to push that line as far as I could get away with, because when you read in the voices of enslaved people, the kinds of punishments that were inflicted, some of them are quite unspeakable. Some of them are even worse than things I included. But I thought we need to look at the brutality of slavery because here is ground zero of racism in America. 
the legacy it left us. It came, comes from slavery. So I don't think we've resolved this wound. It's, it's a deep and bitter wound in America. And until we can fully resolve that, I don't know how we're going to ever change the human heart with this matter. So I think we have to look at it with a very steady, clear eye and say, yep, that doesn't fit with our idea of America, and we can hardly bear to look at it, but we better come to terms with it because this is where it all started. Another revelation for me in this narrative was about the attempted slave rebellion of 1822, which actually happened, led by Denmark Vesey. Can you tell us about a little more about that or what's true in the book or what isn't? Most of um, what I recorded in the book about the Denmark VC plot is, is extremely accurate, actually. Um, I mean, there are differing ideas for, among historians about what really happened there, um, how much of a plot this really was. There's different opinions, but I'm of the opinion that this was quite a large plot that was masterminded by Denmark VC, you know, and it came to nothing at all, but it was, um, it would have been an extraordinary massacre had it actually taken place. But it is based on, um, there's a lot of factual detail in that, in what I recorded there, down to his lieutenants, how he went about it, the chronology. I did a lot of research on that, actually. I went to the New York Historical Society where the Denmark VC trial took place. So I think if you read The Invention of Unions, you'll get a good idea of what really happened there. Well, it also struck me that that happened in this town, you know, that I knew nothing about. I don't know if you had. And you also lived in this same town of Charleston where the Grimke sisters lived, never knew anything about their house. I mean, how many other cities in America are there stories like this that we just have no idea? And why have we not heard them? Yeah, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder too now, after discovering Sarah and Angelina for myself, and I would meet people, you know, when I traveled for the novel last year when it first came out, I would meet women sometimes in cities that would say, oh yes, I studied them in women's study. Now what was it they did? It was kind of like that, but most people I ran into just, you know, really didn't, hadn't heard their names. So I think this could be more common than we might suspect that there are a lot of stories, the stories of our history, when it comes particularly to women's history and black history, that I think could still be discovered and are out there to enlighten us about things. Well, there was one way that the many African Americans have told stories through different kinds of folk art, and you use the, uh, the vehicle of a quilt what inspired that for you? Yeah. Well, I'm not a quilter. I can barely hem a dress. But I wanted a way for these characters, or to suggest a way, that they could tell their story. I mean, I think everyone needs a way to express what is inside of us somehow. Um, and I wanted particularly for an enslaved woman to have this expression of her story. And so I, I hit upon this idea of a, of a quilt. So you would n use needle and thread like you do a pen and paper and tell your story in a quilt. Of course, this really came when I read the Greek myth of Procne and Philomena. You know, and it, you can go and look that up. I won't take time to tell it. But it was about weaving 
a really horrific story into a tapestry and smuggling it out so that people could really find out what happened. And so that gave me the idea. And then I discovered there really are these slave quilts. They're very rare. And they're masterpieces of work, really, where they're slave quilts that tell stories. They're narrative quilts. And um, one is in the Smithsonian, archived, and one at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston of a slave named Harriet Powers. And I went to look at those. And they inspired me, too. Mm -hmm. So it's just another way, a visual way to tell our story, and we need that. And also a traditionally female way of telling a story. Yes, Again. it is. Yeah. And sometimes those ways have been diminished because you know they're a craft or it's just sewing. But um, if you look at Harriet Powers' quilt, you're, you're in the presence of a piece of art. Well, I'd love to dig into that um, relationship between the fight for abolition and the fight for women's rights because it's in the book through fighting for the rights of the oppressed slaves that Sarah and Angelina discovered that they are quite oppressed also. Talk to us a little bit about that kind of hierarchy of rights. Who, who goes first? Yeah. Well, what I tried to never lose sight of when I was writing this is that as limited and as Sarah was, and women like her at the time, it didn't compare to the kind of um, brutality and limitation that enslaved people had. So I, I always tried to kind of walk that line. But it's true that they did draw these parallels. They were among the first that said, wait a minute, aren't we sort of enslaved too? And they never stopped fighting for um, abolition. In fact, I have to say, and this is kind of surprising, that Sarah and Angelina were way ahead of most abolitionists at the time. They were very radical because they didn't just believe in immediate emancipation. They believed in equal rights between the races. And they were struggling and fighting for that as well. But I think, you know, a woman's right at the time was important to them, and they just carried both of them out at the same time and linked them up, and it kind of split the abolitionist movement, and they have, you know, been maligned because of that in some ways, but in other ways championed. Mm, for their unwomanly behavior. That's right. right. One of my, another one of my favorite lines, and this comes from the mouth of Sarah Grimke, and I, and I use this in the novel. I stole it right out of her mouth. Um, she looked at the male abolitionists who were sort of trying to hush them up and say, would you just quit trying to get women's rights? We can get to that later. We just need to free the slaves right now, and you women, please, just cool it. And she just said, sir, kindly take your feet off my neck. <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, slavery was upheld from the pulpit. You know, the uh, priests and pastors quoted scripture, and families believed this was their right. That you yourself, you grew up in a home full of devout Christians. This was part of your upbringing. You write about it in the dance of the dissident daughter taking another path. So like the Grimke sisters, you had to go through this rite of separation from family and religion. And I'm just wondering if any of that echoed for you or came through in those characters. 
I confess, I identified somewhat with Sarah Grimke. I did, and maybe that's why I chose to tell the, the story through her eyes instead of Angelina's. Um, and for me, um, yes, I was enculturated in a small town in the South in the 50s and 60s, pre-Civil Rights South, pre-feminist America. And in the South, that is saying a lot. Um, I was sent to charm school, folks where I learned such things as how to cross your legs. You see, I'm not doing it right. I'm not. How to take off a glove, how to walk and pivot and things like this. But, you know, I came to a place where I had to break free of the confines of the world that shaped me. And maybe everyone has to do this to a certain extent, to find their own voice their own consciousness, their own um, courage to express who they are and what's inside of them, and hopefully in a very conscious way. I try to do it in a conscious and gracious way as I can, but it's important to do it fiercely, too. And that took me a while. I had failures of courage doing that, just like Sarah did. It took her a long time to break free. So I, yeah, I had to break free of some of the enculturation of my religious tradition, my southern traditions, a lot of things. There are a few different moments where Sarah gets to where she's saying, no, this doesn't work for me. And I'm just curious about your, was there a moment for you when you just said, no, this is not my way? Oh, I had so many no moments. (laughs) It's hard to pinpoint one. I mean, I wrote about a lot of no moments in The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, I was, you know, older then, but my no moments started when I was um, in adolescence, even. I remember being 13 when Martin Luther King Jr. marched near my hometown. He, he marched to Albany, Georgia, where I was born, and was jailed, arrested and jailed there, and wrote some of his letters from there. I remember this very vividly, and I, re- I remember many things like that, at the time, and I think they, you know, affected my consciousness growing up. I'm curious about letting go of these novels once you work on them, because, um, you know, you're, you're looking at complicated relationships, and these are things that there have been a couple of movies made out of your books, out of The Mermaid Chair, and also a very successful film about the secret life of bees, and they may not have the same sensitivity or maybe a little more simplistic, and I'm wondering what that process is like for you of letting go of the book, letting the film be made, and what you think of those films. Well, what I had to do was to tell myself this is a whole other medium. It's an adaptation. It's not a clone of my book. And then I can sort of take a breath and let it go to Hollywood. Um, And it is kind of like jumping out of an airplane, though. You don't quite know if the parachute will open or not. And I didn't know until I got in the theater and watched it whether or not the parachute was open. And I think it sort of did, so I was okay with it. But, yeah, you do have to let it go and um, recognize that maybe this will reach another audience of people that wouldn't read the book. I don't know. But you want the story to go on, but it goes on as a different kind of creature. Well, I want to go back to this. Um, There's a question here about, in the book, everyone fails to do what needs to be done to move inclusion forward. Do you think that's true in today's world? Um, I 
think to some extent we, we still drag our feet around about that. Yeah, I see that sometimes. I mean, I feel like while we've obviously made vast strides since Sarah Grimke and, and Hattie Handful were around, we still have our own journey and contemporary work to do. I mean, I, I think we have enormous possibility around this, but we also have enormous uh, failures of inclusion, and I still see it with, with women between races. I mean, it's, it's a, quite a painful experience right now to see this erupt to the surface and to see the racism that really is you know, in our culture at times. And um, I think sometimes it gets very subtle and it goes underground. But it's very hard to legislate the human heart. And I think it is ultimately a work that, that has to be done there, even though I am all for working toward inclusion and equality from that level, really authentically between people, but economically, politically, education. I mean, I think it's such a large issue that we have to approach it from all kinds of angles. And my way to do it, the only way I know to do it, is to tell stories that can take us and drop us into their hearts and minds and see what that feels like. Mm -hmm. But you must have taken a lot of soul, you know, soul searching to come to the point where you were ready to write about race. And what, what would prompt somebody who has no experience or taste for that to do that kind of soul searching? I am cursed to be an introspective person. <laughs> I don't know. I came this way, and um, I can't seem to help it, but um, it must be blissful to go around and not think about, you know, <laughs> what's going on inside of you and your own, your own darkness, your own shadow. You know, I do hear people say, because I am a memoirist too, and, you know, people say, isn't that a very selfish thing to do, you know, to write memoir? And I say, no, it frees me from myself, you know, to be able to go within and to try to grapple with my own understanding, my own failings, my own yearnings. My, it keeps me authentic. It keeps me truthful with myself as best I can. And then to be able to write it, and then I'm freed. You know, I... I've read a lot of uh, C.G. Jung. He was, his work was in, influential with me. And also Thomas Merton. And they both said the same thing, that if we can individually grapple with our own darkness and transcend that and find some new consciousness, we really can change the world, that it starts with each heart. You know, I still believe that. So you came out of the prison that, uh, similar to Sarah, similar to Handful in their own kind of way. And, but there's a lot of loss in that. You know, you talked about things that you had to abandon when you left your own church. Um, I guess let, parted with your family on some level. And that kind of past, people can carry that in very different ways, I guess. And I'm wondering how it manifests in you. Um, I think... While I had to break with certain things that I grew up with, now, never my family, you know. It's, as my father says, um, there's nothing thicker than blood. 
in our family, and that's true, even when The Dance of the Dissident Daughter was published, and they all went, oh, my Lord. My father still read this book and said, okay, I guess I'll try to be a feminist now. <laughs> that was my father. <laughs> and they're great. I mean, my parents are both alive. They're 93, and they support me and my ideas, even when they don't understand them. <laughs> But they've been great supporters of my work. So, you know, I never had to really break from my family, although I had to distance myself from a lot of the ideas that were in my family sometimes, or my certainly my church and my homeland, similarly, I guess, to Sarah. But I don't think that's a particularly unique thing. I think it's just part of, of an individuating journey that we're all called to do in order to be as much of our own person as we can be. Well, uh, similar to Secret Life of Bees and this, there are these deep explorations of historical relations between white women and black women and, and, and people in general. I'm wondering if you would ever consider writing a contemporary book of that kind of relationship, and how would that be different? I think it would be really challenging to do, yeah. Um, my, I mean, I never rule out that anything that I might write. I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf said, everything is the proper stuff of fiction, which is another reason I didn't really hesitate to write in the voice of a black enslaved woman, because I think we shouldn't draw those boundaries. But I would never say I wouldn't do that. My ideas... They sprout inside of me. It's like, see if I can explain this. An idea will come or, you know, I'll see it, and an image usually, and it'll take root in my imagination. Not so much in my mind, but in my imagination. And I'll play with it. I mean, I think creativity is essentially play. The imagination wants to play with what it loves. So I, I try to play with this. And then if it takes root and sprout, I'll start to sprout a story will come out. I try to follow that. And sometimes it takes my breath. But if you don't do at least one thing in your life that takes your breath away, you know, maybe you aren't living. I don't know. <laughs> but when I thought, oh, no, I've got to, I'm going to write a novel on American slavery? Oh, my goodness. You know, it took my breath. But I think in some ways what you're saying is even, that's challenging too, you know, to put in a contemporary way. So I'll just say one other thing. I think, though, sometimes it's easier for readers to see the relevance of race through another lens than what is contemporary. To see, to look at it from a perspective in history and somehow have it all sneak up on you of how relevant this really is, how we are capable as human beings of such casual cruelty and banality and how invisible we can render evil and let it gather. And it's, it's an interesting thing to see it played out here and then have this realization that it is actually relevant, that we are the sum of our history and that it is powerfully present in our lives. 
So many times in this book, people are told, the time has not yet come for action. This is the way of our life. This is what's happening now. And there's a central question in the novel is why God plants such yearnings in us if they all come to nothing. So what's your advice to those who feel like, oh, I don't know what to do next. Do I move? Do you say press on, my sisters? <laughs> Um, that's as good as anything, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Press on, my sisters. I, I know, I think sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back, and then two steps forward and one step back, but you, you know, you keep moving like Sarah did, and I was inspired by her life. I mean, she made me a braver person. Being with her life history and her story, I felt braver, I felt inspired, and um, I think to plant our feet and to say, I am about this, and I want to serve the world somehow, how can I do that? Yeah, it, it's often, you have a lot of disappointments, a lot of exclusions, a lot of struggles, but that's the beauty of, of Sarah and Angelina's lives to me is that they were so brave and so dogged, you know, and that's often what it takes. Well, Suma Kid, before we thank you, I want to thank all of the people who helped to make this production possible tonight. The musical executive producer is Patricia Lynch, musical producer Margaret Talcott, New Hampshire Public Radio president Betsy Gardella, New Hampshire Public Radio broadcast producer for tonight, Maureen McMurray. New Hampshire Public Radio digital producer, Sarah Plord. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer tonight, Jason Martin. The musical director and the band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please join me in thanking Sue Mark Kidd. <laughs>